0: Thank you all for worshiping and giving and Hope you have a Bible, and if you do, would love for you to open up to Joel chapter one. There's only three chapters, so you just open up to the book of Joel, and we'll be spending a little time in that very small book in just a little bit. Uh, if you can't find Joel, it's tucked away toward the end of the Old Testament, so I would just go to Matthew and go backwards uh, a couple of, um, not very many pages at all, because the minor prophets are called minor for a reason. They're kind of short. Uh, and we'll be getting into that uh, text in just a little bit. We'll actually have some verses on the screen to get us started uh, around the conversation today. Uh, if you want to just find uh, your place and Joel will read from chapter one in just a little bit uh, now I got to tell y'all I had an existential crisis uh, the other day and, and I don't know if that's like a midlife crisis that happens before you're at midlife or unless maybe something's going on that I don't know about because I, I hope I'm not halfway yet that would be kind of short but regardless I, I had a, a existential kind of a moment where you kind of feel like outside of yourself looking down on yourself wondering hey why is that not like it should be uh, maybe you've had those moments maybe uh, I should be talking to someone. Somebody else uh, about that instead of y'all. Um, uh, maybe a week, ag- a week or so ago, it dawned on me that June was right around the corner uh, and, and of course now June is here, um, but not that I have some adverse relationship with June. Uh, growing up, it was always one of my favorite months, uh, most anticipated months. So Lindsay and I celebrated anniversary yesterday. So June is a really great month. And, and of course, as a kid, uh, June always meant that summer was here, school was out, uh, vacations were just around the corner. Uh, and generally there's just more things to do in June. Days are longer, days are warmer. It, it's just a better time uh, to, to, to just be outside unless it gets too, too hot, but even then, uh, uh, you can still find a way to do a lot of things and got time to to um, uh, make time to do things. Uh, but it was jarring for me that uh, I just it just didn't feel like June for me. And this maybe may just be me, but since I'm wearing the microphone today, I'll just kind of talk about what it's like to be me for just a few minutes. And, and hopefully that won't uh, scare too many of you away. Um, but again, maybe it was just me, but uh, the excitement and the anticipation that usually comes along with, with June in this season... It really wasn't there. And, and uh, now the existential crisis part of it all was, um, I, I just assumed that, well, I guess I crossed that line. I finally, grew up 12 years later than I should have. Um, I, I figured I just kind of crossed that line, and, and uh, you know I was coming to terms with the raw and, and gritty uh, uh, reality of no longer being you know young enough to believe that, uh, hey, the, the sun's out, let's just go out and play. Um, but honestly, I, I just couldn't accept that uh, that was the reason that I, that I felt this way. Uh, there, there had to be more to it. And, and I started thinking and, and honestly started praying, because I felt like something, God was just trying to, to tell me something and, and move on my heart about something, and I just didn't feel right. Uh, And and usually when I have those kind of situations, I realize that, you know, God's trying to to get something across to me. Um, But over the last few years, uh, you know, as much as this time still brings, uh, you know, energy and excitement that, that we associate with summer, Um, Over the past several years, you know, especially for our country, for us, you know, as long if you're aware of what's going on in the outside world, and if you aren't, hey, God bless you, but if you've been paying attention to the news cycle and been paying attention to kind of how culture is and society is and all the stuff going on around us, um, that this time of year hasn't, you know, as much as it brings the normal excitement, it's also brought its share of grief and it's brought its share of discouraging and kind of left, you know, us as a people in a very depressed state. And maybe you don't feel this way and and that's fine if you don't, but this is kind of where I'm Coming from, and I'll share with you exactly why I kind of feel that way. Um, But I I think after years and years of of, of associating this time frame with with grief and the memory bank getting fuller and fuller over time, the scales kind of tilted. And as much as this time of year still means summer and and fun, uh, there's also this kind of lingering, you know, memory and and, and burden of grief that just kind of you know comes along with this season. Now, you know, this time of year has been especially uh, you know jarring for many in the church for years. Just as the cultural wars are always little fresh. Every summer and agendas are pressed that challenge and test our values and virtues, but specifically there's been a lot of kind of dark stuff that's happened around this time of year over the last couple of years. Back in 2015, if you'll remember, uh, especially hitting home with the church, there was the Charleston church shooting um, that uh, really shook the entire church world. Now I'll share with you why, why especially that left an impact on me. Uh, but you know, two years ago there was this that summer, you know, the onslaught of unrest that our country was uh, uh, you know dealt with racially uh, for really the whole summer. But it started around this time of year, uh, and, and now just a week or so ago. Uh, another tragedy in Texas with a shooting. And and I just feel like after so many years of something happening around this time again and again and again, you kind of begin to, there kind of begins to be a footprint in that time of year. And it kind of begins to linger. And, you know, instead of just thinking about vacation and days off and, you know, the fun of summer, you start thinking about this kind of stuff that just kind of continues to happen around this time of year, year after year. And as much as I like to stick my head in the sand uh, and pretend that this time of year only brings to mind the movies that I want to go see and the ice cream you want to eat and the roller coasters you want to ride, you know, I I think I'd be lying to myself and and I wouldn't be doing my job as a pastor speaking to God's people if I just thought, hey, maybe that isn't a trend because I think that it really is. Uh, I, I think that it's right that the church pay attention to trends like this and patterns like this because I think that God is trying to get our attention. Not that he has a problem with the summer sun that we enjoy. He gave it to us after all. Uh, but maybe, maybe the season that's typically known for joy and, and pleasure being adjacent to and being juxtaposed next to grief and pain, maybe that is God's way of trying to tell us that all is not right in our world. Now maybe you're like me and you grew up. In, you know, I grew up in the 90s, and, and everybody, you know, everything was just glad and, and, and happy, and nobody had any problems. Then 9/11 happens, and the whole world just kind of gets immersed in a lot of dark stuff, and it's kind of been that way ever since. And a lot of different things have happened. Uh, but you know, it's it's really you know, it's tempting to say, well, you know, I'm going to tune all that out, and I'm going to pretend like everything is as it should be. And you know, and then the naivety and, and the purity often is as, as we have as kids is you know, it's it's kind of often uh, comes to grips in, in a in a jarring way with with the reality that all is not as it should be. All is not as it was meant to be. And something inside of us, as much as we want to ignore it and pretend it, that it isn't there, we just can't really do that. And 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 maybe God's people should especially be, uh, d- d- be aware of that and, and focus in on what might God be trying to say. And as much as we want to ignore it and as capable as we are to ignore and distract ourselves with other things, maybe we should consider the contrast if only at this time and and at this place so that we might hear a timely message from God. Now, maybe you didn't come to church to hear a sobering message that attempts to put things in perspective uh, today, uh, distracting you from the good times that y- you might can have. And, and I get that. I'm right there with you. Uh, summer is the season for cookouts and pool days and, and road trips and stuff. Uh, summer is the time to maximize your your days off in your in warm weather. Uh, things that you can't do when it's dark and cold and, and wet. But but here's what's even more important for us to hear as a church, and why I think today especially is important that we consider this. This, for us to consider that we are we were God created the church and God started the church and we are the church of Jesus Christ and we have a very unique an exclusive purpose in this world. We have been anointed by Him to bring good news to a hurting and broken world. That is our purpose. That is our calling. We have been anointed by Him with a gift that is so amazing that we should never ever take it for granted. And we have been called and sent to point people to to, to point people away from the superficial and the artificial in the world towards the real source of joy and peace. And and we could. We could fall in line with the rest of the world, numbing ourselves temporarily. We could, uh, you know, follow in line with the rest of the world, or we could be trendsetters. We could lead the way to a place of prayer, hoping for and calling for and waiting for revival to come over our land that is so desperately needed. A verse that we always hear and no doubt cling to when the world around us seems unsettled and begins to unravel is one from the Old Testament, uh, which we'll bring up in a minute on the screen. But the context for that verse is very important. Uh, it's an evergreen, always appropriate verse, always applicable. And, and that verse is 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, and, and we'll look at it in a minute. But the key idea of that verse is that it invites God's people to lead the way when the world has lost its way, and it compels. God's people to intercede for their hurting and broken world notice the trend there God's people not that it doesn't reach out to all people but specifically the audience in that verse is that God is calling to his people to invite he's inviting his people to lead the way when the world has lost its way and God is calling and compelling his people to intercede for a world around us that is hurting and broken now I'll share with you kind of what brought this about. Um, uh, again, about seven years ago, I was in a theology class, one of my theology classes at Gardner Webb, um, back in 2015, and it was the Thursday after the Charleston shooting that took place on a Wednesday night. Uh, the uh, a- a- Emmanuel A.M.E. Zion Church um, down in Charleston, a black congregation, welcomed in a a a a, a man uh, who would ultimately uh, murder uh, many in the congregation that night. You know, I initially heard the news that morning and, and I didn't think much about it. I got up and, and got ready for school and, you know, was thinking, well, that's awful. I, you know, that, that's that's unfortunate. Uh, but hearing the motives and, and really not being uh, affected by that, I thought, well, you know, I, I guess that's just part of living in this world and it's so unfortunate, but uh, time to move on. And I went to school that day and, and being in a seminary environment, obviously the mood was different. Obviously the air was different. Uh, and, and I got to school that day and if you'll remember um, the guy uh, fled the scene and actually he was on the run and he had got to Shelby, North Carolina about 10 minutes from where I was at and the news begins to spread that the the killer is literally running from the police in Shelby just down the road from Gardner-Webb and and so all that kind of really made the scene at at school that day um, especially heavy and especially somber and I can't remember remember the exact timeline because I would go and spend the whole day, literally the whole day, sometimes from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. But I can't remember the exact timeline, but I remember being in class that morning and hearing that the guy had been pursued and had been apprehended uh, just down the road. And and, and again, naturally being in a seminary, being a church shooting and all that was going on, the the mood was especially morose. But um, the class I was in that afternoon was about half African-American, about half of the students in the class. And most of them were in their forties and fifties were men that were pastors about half of the class that afternoon were African-American pastors or would-be pastors. So obviously, I wasn't prepared for the burden and the grief that they had walked into with and that they were bringing to the table that day. Um, what was a, an unfortunate event for me was literally devastating and overwhelming for many of them. And again, I wasn't prepared to even understand and wasn't really, uh, you know, at first even open to the grief that was being felt. And and, and I got to say, this is one of the most defining moments of my ministry. It helped shaped how I would respond to heartbreak, especially heartbreak that doesn't initially impact me. I remember listening and asking questions and just soaking up the pain that, and the burden that was being uh, bore that day. It was tempting for me to not bear that burden with them because it really wasn't at first my burden to bear. It was tempting to keep my head down and get through the day and enjoy the evening I had planned. But I got to say, my heart wouldn't let me and God, most importantly, wouldn't let me. Now, thank God there was a preacher whose name escapes me that looked across from me that day and spoke something so powerful into my soul. I'll never forget it, and I'm so thankful for it. Uh, I made a comment about how, well, well, you know, isn't this just an unfortunate part of living in a fallen world? And, 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 and yet it's awful that it was a church and it was awful that it was racially, you know, uh, you know uh, motivated. But, you know, I made a comment and it, I wasn't being insensitive, but I just didn't really know what else to say. And we were going around the room and I felt like I should say something, but I didn't really have the right words to say. Um, but, uh, you know, I basically questioned, uh, you know, what can we do about it? Uh, And and this man, again, I don't know his name, don't remember his name, but I can see him looking across from me with love in his heart and with brokenness in his soul. He looked across from me and he made this comment. Revival is waiting on each individual to begin to pray and seek God. So when it for me in the class that day with the situation didn't really hit with me or land with me and wasn't really relevant to me, revival is waiting on each individual individual to begin praying and seeking God not just those that are affected by something not just those that are guilty of something but revival only happens when everybody every child of God every believer every Christian revival happens when every individual begins to seek and pray to God even when the burden and the brokenness isn't necessarily pressuring every Christian. Come on, there is so much wrong in the world. There are 100,000 things that we could be potentially uh, you know, burdened by every day. But so many of us, if it doesn't land on our plate, we don't deal with it. And I don't blame you. I don't blame anybody for trying to just deal with what they've got to deal with because usually we've got enough on our plates. But when something so big happens and something so with such gravity happens, when it's tempting to push it away, revival says, God says, revival only happens when everybody reaches in and everybody bows down and everybody says, I'm gonna make it my problem. I'm gonna make it my burden. I'm gonna share in this. And even when we can ignore it, especially when we can ignore it, when the earth begins to tear away, and unravel in any place. It is a clarion call that all of us need to seek the Lord. Not just the, the area that has been torn. Not just the people group that have been affected. But everybody under the sun. Everybody under the reign of God. All of us hear that call from heaven. Or should hear that call from heaven. To seek the Lord. If we are ever going to get the healing and the restoration and the reviving power of God that we so desperately want. So now, the verse, Solomon prayed to God and God responds to Solomon at the dedication of the temple. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Now notice, who's he talking to? Not the wicked people that we often point out and say, well, they're the problem. He's talking to God's people my people who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray and seek and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and then I will forgive their sin and then and only then will I bring healing, not just to the physical land, which was their problem. They were literally waiting for crops to grow, but heal the brokenness in the world. Listen, I don't blame you. I don't blame you if you don't consume Media or or the news media, social media. I don't blame you if you want to unplug from that stuff because it can get a little bit overwhelming. But sometimes you just can't ignore that there's a fire outside, can you? When the fire rises and the smoke fills the earth, that's when the church must begin to seek the Lord collectively. You know what is right in the middle of the word revival? You know what you should see, and I hope that you see, and I haven't been able to unsee for the last several weeks right in the middle of the word revival is I. And it sends a message to every single one of us that revival requires every individual Christian to seek God's presence and God's power. The the preacher was right. Only when I begin to seek God's presence and power will I and those alongside of me Begin to receive from heaven the healing that we need. Now, whether we need to confess sins we've committed or be broken by the damage that other sins have caused, we must, we must, we must seek the Lord. When Solomon dedicated the temple and prayed that God would keep the nation united and unified around him, God responded with, if my people that are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the rest of the world, then I will hear. That was God's response. And it's the same to us. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there were always a prophet, there was always a prophet that God would raise up that was really preaching that same message that if we turn, if we pray, if we seek, then God, but only if then. God would raise up a prophet who would travel the land and remind the people of how they could stay in step with God and get back if they stumble. The prophets would take on an even greater role when the nation was under fire, not only from its enemies, but from within, falling away from the the word and from God. Uh, Now the prophets would often come to the masses with an issue that they never heard about. That if you read through the prophets, a lot of times the message of the prophets is, hey, you haven't heard about this, but now I'm telling you about this and now it's your problem to deal with. It wasn't often the sins of the people that were being spoken to, but the sins of other people. It wasn't often a tragedy they were dealing with, but tragedies others were dealing with. And the prophet was trying to bring everybody under the same umbrella and bring a burden to everyone's shoulders because the prophet would say, revival only happens when all of us Begin to share in this burden. Sometimes they, nobody even noticed it until the prophets talked about it. Their message was usually something like this There is a fire spreading across our land, and unless we seek the Lord, we may all be consumed and burnt and affected by it. One of these prophets was named Joel, who was raised up during a pretty chaotic time for Israel. Now, it was a time marked by all kinds of sin, people turning away from God. But two things in particular stand out about this time period. And really they stand out about any time period where people turn away from God. Two things about this time period. There was an extreme amount of violence and an extreme amount of sexual perverseness. Things haven't changed, have they? Extreme violence and extreme perverseness. Now, if you study any culture, from any time period, today, yesterday, thousands of years ago, hundreds of years from now, however long we may live, any time period, when a culture gets away or empty of or out of step from the presence of God and the power of God, the ark is always towards violence and perverseness. You can read about it in Genesis 18. You can read about it in Judges chapter 20. You can read about it in the prophets. You can read about it on the news. All throughout history, when people get out of step from God's presence and God's power, the ark always is, the drift always is towards violence and perverseness. You can find it as early as Genesis chapter 6, and you can find it as recent as today's headlines. The drift is always, the ark is always, violence and perverseness. And this isn't new. Again, if you've ever read the book of Leviticus, which I know you do every night before you go to bed, If you've ever read the book of Leviticus, you'll know there are some kind of wild, abstract laws where God says to his people, hey, don't do that. And and if you read it and you look at it, and even in our modern, you know, way out there culture, there's stuff in there that we would even never, you know, obviously we wouldn't. But there's stuff in there that people in our world today would never even consider doing. And the reason why God gave the Jews some of these very kind of fringe, very extreme laws is because they were entering into a land dominated by people who were empty of God's presence and power. And they were walking into a land called Canaan that was full of violence and full of perversion. And if you read Leviticus and you wonder, why is that a commandment? It's because that stuff was being done there. And the Jews were to to be aware of it and to be prepared to obviously avoid it, but also understand how damaging it was. The reason why God gave them so many fringe commandments in some cases about what to avoid, how to respond was because they were gonna encounter some weird, wild, far out stuff when they got there. Over time, even the nation of Israel, even with the truth of God, they drifted from God's presence and power and that stuff filtered in. Eventually they were overtaken by foreign powers and scattered to the winds. And around 500 B.C., many of them were allowed to go back to their homeland after being in captivity in foreign lands. And one of the prophets God rose up during this time was named Jewel. Only a small minority of people had returned to the land, and even a smaller minority had, were seeking the Lord, and, and most of them weren't. The glory days were behind them. For the most part, people had settled for a new normal where God didn't dwell in the temple, where his presence wasn't felt and where people thought that, you know what? God just isn't gonna be with us like he used to be or potentially could have been. A small remnant still worshiped. They went through the motions, but they observed the broken outside world and and they just weren't moved to do anything about it. And they were just, they were convinced that, hey, it's just not gonna get any better. They were resolved just try to make the best of it, and in many cases, just ignore it. And Ezra and Haggai, two other leaders in this time period, they observed kind of this downtrodden spirit. Many of the priests and Levites heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house before the exile, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the new temple being built. So Ezra says, tells us that many of the people who had been there previously and been taken away and brought back, they just weren't motivated by uh, what was going on because they didn't believe that it would ever be like it used to be. Even if it wasn't really that good when, back then anyway, they just thought it was better. The Ezra says they just weren't motivated. The older folks, the, the older generation, they were resigned that things are just not ever gonna get better. Haggai, another prophet, says to his people, who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it nothing? Is it not nothing in your eyes? And again, they just thought that, hey, The world's gone and, and everything's kind of falling apart. So that's just kind of how it's going to be. So God raised up a guy named Joel to be like a lightning strike in a small remnants culture to remind them that they possessed more power to bring about change than they realized. And it's with that in mind that we jump in to Joel chapter one. And this first three verses is Joel's way of getting their attention and making it sure that nobody, uh, nobody could avoid or should ignore this call from God about what to do and how to respond to what was going on around them and the fire that was spreading around them. So the word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pithuel, Hear this, you elders. Give ear all you inhabitants of the land. So all means all, right? Everybody, you and me and everyone else. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your father? So what was going on in Israel and what was going on in, in, in Judea? The, the, the falling away and the violence and the perverseness and all the different chaos and all the different conflict, it had never been like this before, or at least to Joel and at least to their generation, it had never been this bad before. And, and, and there's something in us that is often, it, it's like we've been raised in this church culture where we always say, well, it's worse than ever and there's nothing we can do. And that's kind of our defense mechanism and and honestly that doesn't come from God that comes from the devil because he loves to see God's people live defeated and unmotivated And, and Joel leans into it have you ever seen it like this before? have your fathers did they ever see it like this before? and then he says tell your children about it let your children tell their children and their children another generation so he says hey we need to talk about this and we can't ignore it and we can't say well it's not our problem and we can't just say, let's just do the best we can and then get through it. Jewel asked the question, has your surrounding world, and let's make it bring it to us in our day. Has your surrounding world, nation and community and environment, has it turned away from God? Has it fell away from God in some capacity? Would you say, hey, it's not like it used to be or it's not as it should be? Would you answer yes to that? And of course, all of us probably would or should, you know, in some way, hey, yeah, it's not as it should be. And maybe some of you would say, it's not like it used to be. And we all respond with that same, you know, uh, response. Yeah, it's not like it should be. It's not like it could be. It's not like it used to be. So in the first chapter of Joel, he's gonna call for each individual, everybody, everybody in the land, he's calling for each individual to begin praying for revival, and he gives us two specific things to do. Repent and lament. Now, thankfully, I didn't have to make that rhyme. It's just part of the story. But easy for you to remember. He calls them to repent and to lament. Verse 13 and 14. Gird yourselves And lament, you priests, wail you who minister before the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth. You who minister to my God for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders, all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord your God. Now, do you you get the sense of urgency that Joel is trying to get across here? Do you think that he's calling for this massive response because something small is going on or because it doesn't demand our utmost attention? It doesn't need me to really hype it up, right? You can get the gist that, hey, something was going down, the fire was spreading, things were rough, things were bad, and Joel says, everybody, cry out to the Lord. Now, here's the thing. We can't own everyone's sin. You aren't responsible for someone else's sin. But if there is any part of your heart that is turned away from God, Joel is saying, we must repent of that and we must return to God in that area. Yes, the most egregious sins may not be yours and you're not responsible for someone else's, but Joel says, all of us come in your sackcloth, which is a way of repenting or sign of repenting. Come, uh, pour yourself out before the altar. Cry out to the Lord. And regarding the sin around you, the chaos that is brought on those around you, he says lament for those and and, and cry out for God's mercy and grace to cover that sin and overcome that sin and change and heal those hearts that need it. Notice there is not a call to be judgmental, to be critical, to go and point the finger, but the call is for each individual Christian or each individual believer to respond in the most powerful and effective way. Repent and lament. Repent, identify what you can do better. What can I do better? Again, starts with I, right? What can I do better? I can't change them. I can't fix that. I can't make them repent. No, but I can identify what I can do better. And we've all got room to do better, don't we? Repent means to identify what you can do better, what I can do better, and lament intercede for those who seem stuck in or are suffering from brokenness. As in, we see people who are just perpetually living in sinful lifestyles, intercede for them, pray for them, love them in whatever way you can. And for those that are oppressed, for those that are suffering, for those that are being hurt by other people's sins, it's not my fault, not your fault, but we should intercede for them and do whatever we can to help relieve them. But it begins with that posture of prayer. Now, this isn't deflecting responsibility. This is about stepping onto the front line in prayer. And go down to verse 19 and listen to how Joel takes hold of his generation situation. This is Joel talking, not God through him. Oh Lord, to you I cry out. Notice the I. He doesn't say I'm praying for them or we, he says, I cry out for fire has devoured the open pastures and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. So notice he talks about how the fire has damaged the land literally and of course, figuratively. The beasts of the field also cry out to you for the water brooks are dried up. The fire has devoured the open pastures. So literally they were being starved from the damage of this fire, of this spiritual decline. He acknowledges what's fallen away, what's been burned away by the enemy's fire, and he seeks the Lord earnestly and passionately and personally. Who among us would be willing to do what Joel did? Who among us would take the first step and repent, and then secondly, take that important step to lament? Instead of turning away to what could be a fun and fancy free occasion... Who would be willing to put on the sackcloth and ashes and in ashes but come before God? Who would be willing to as verse 14 said to consecrate a fast? You know what that means? It means that when we could ignore it, when something doesn't affect us personally, we choose to embrace and bear a burden and to feel the effects that someone else is feeling. You ever been hungry before? Not not fun, right? You ever been hungry and not been able to eat before? Not fun, right? It brings you into the reality. It brings you alongside of those that are being affected. Who among us would be willing to do that? And come on, let's be honest. If people are living in sin, what what is their number one issue? They are being starved spiritually. They are suffering because they are disconnected with God. Who would be willing to go alongside them and fast for them and pray that God would make you feel that emptiness that they feel? that you might would have that burden even heavier. For, for, for those that are suffering, for those that are afflicted, for those that lost loved ones in situations that you would never imagine going through, who among us would be willing to go through and walk alongside them and feel the emptiness that they feel so that you might have that burden and might be more motivated than ever to do what you can do for the kingdom of God? It means to embrace and bear that burden, choose to search our heart, to choose to own our peace of the fallen world and confess that we've sinned and lament where others have stumbled. We cry out for where the fire has burned our land, whether for matches that we've lit or sparks ignited by others. Nonetheless, we understand that if our world is going to ever be healed, the church must be seeking him in totality. Now, here's the key thing about lament. Lament defined is a passionate expression of grief. Now, your response to what's going on may be sorrow. And how can it not be when you see things like happen in Texas? Your response may be anger, because maybe you see some stuff going on in our world and it makes you mad. And I don't blame you for getting mad about it, righteously indignant about it. And you get angry because why would they do that? And how can they do that? They don't know what the Bible says and, and they don't know. Or they don't care. Now, you may be feeling sorrow for something going on in the world. You may be angry or you may be cynical. You may be beyond the point of being angry about it or being upset about it. You might be just thinking, you know what? That's the world we live in. It's awful. I hate it and it's not going to get better. So why should I care? I'm imagining that you're in one of those categories. You're either brokenhearted for something that happened to somebody that could happen to you. You're angry that somebody would ignore what you believe is true and right. (laughs) Or you're cynical. And you're thinking, hey, not my problem. It's choosing to simply observe and feel hopeless. Lamenting is going to God with that anger, that cynicism, that sorrow, and it's giving to God. It's going to God and saying, God, I'm not just going to be down and depressed and be hopeless. I'm not just going to be angry and point the finger and and, and bark at someone. I'm not just going to be, hey, I don't care. I'm going to bring my emotions to you. I'm going to cast those emotions on you because I believe that you can do something with the emotions that I can't do anything with. Sometimes the question is, we question if there's anything we can do or if there's any use. That's where cynicism comes from. Lament is choosing to wade into the waters that have flooded the world. The smokescreen that has been lit by the fire and crying out to God in the middle of the mess. Now look at, verse, look at chapter two, verse one through three. And Joel's gonna continue his message about the day of the Lord. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been seen, nor will there ever be any such after them for many successive generations. And and Joel sees this people, sees this problem, sees this thing bringing a fire on the land, a fire devours before them. Behind them, a flame burns like the garden. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and it's consuming it as they approach it. Behind them is a desolate wilderness. Now, you may interpret that as being something that's happening in our culture, something that's happening that's changing things for the worse. Violence, perverseness, anything in between. Joel looks forward to a day when God himself will restore all things, when he will step in, whether we've sought him or not, whether we've called on him or not. Joel says one day God's going to see this happening. He's going to see the fire spreading and God's going to say enough is enough. If God observes our world under the weight of violence and perverseness, if he chooses to intervene and bring justice and peace, Joel's message is we must be a people that are ready for him and are ushering in or are preparing for whatever he has to bring, the revival he has to bring. We must be welcoming it. We must be preparing the way for it. We must be looking for it. See, Joel's message is that unless we are seeking him and turns toward him, we may miss him. That's why he said back in chapter one to remit repent and lament, to look to God, turn toward God, because God is coming with the solution. Are we prepared for it? Are we calling on him for it? Are we seeking him? Now, years later, John the Baptist and Jesus preached this same message in two verses that tell us the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John preached it and Jesus preached it, as in look to God, prepare your hearts, turn away from whatever else you're looking at and look toward God. If we're not turned towards him and open to his activity, we will find ourselves turned away from him and outside of his activity. Joel says that God is in the business of addressing brokenness and mending hearts. We should be fanning that flame. But if we don't engage in this, then the day that God chooses to step into the picture, whether in a small way or a major way, that day suddenly goes from good to bad for us. That day suddenly goes from a day of salvation to a day day of gloom and doom. His message is, if we don't turn towards the healing God wants to bring, if we don't welcome it and seek to spread it, then we might miss it. We will miss it. And if we miss it, we find ourselves in a worse place, detached from God's presence and power. So let me make it clear, as if it isn't already. There's nothing good about the unrest in our world. The violence and the perverseness and everything in between. All of that is a byproduct of a world that is turned away from God, a world that is more and more independent and autonomous, a world that has chosen to weigh itself down with power and authority it was never meant to bear and is incapable of possessing. Our world has turned away from God, making God out of objects and institutions, We lift up politicians and celebrities and athletes above God. We choose recreation over worship. We choose material over spiritual. We build up our kingdoms and we pause God's kingdom. We set set our table with the finest and the best and we give scraps to the kingdom of God. It's just the truth, isn't it? And I'm not talking about the outside world. This is the church that's guilty of that. Our response to how broken our world has been has been either to ignore it or misaddress it rather than repenting, rather than lamenting. But oh, we still come to church and we numb ourselves with soothing songs and pleasing sermons. We huddle with like-minded allies while the enemies are outside the gates, striking again and again, leaving desolation behind them. But as long as they don't get too close, we think we're safe. We let our guard down because we haven't felt the pressure from the world directly. We don't struggle with those sins, and we don't think that ours are as vile. We haven't been hurt by that violence, so we keep our heads in the clouds, so we don't repent and we don't lament. Church, we run the risk of missing God's outstretched arm to bring revival. We risk turning a day of good news into a day of bad news because a day that could mean salvation for us may cement us in a world that is destined for condemnation and loss. Listen to Joel's plea to us. To us, not the heathens, not the pagans, not the hypocrites, but the people of God, verse 12. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. He relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the babies, everybody. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priest who minister to the Lord weep before between the porch and the altar, between the vestibule and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not give your heritage to reproach. The nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Speaking to the outside world watching us. This is where we are, church. Verse 17, we are between the lobby and the altar before God. But are we responding to God? Are we seeking God? Are we praying for revival and doing what is within our power to bring revival? God is jealous for this land. He wants to see us want him and his rule, but he will not force it. We don't hide what we want. We make it quite obvious, don't we? In this country especially, We don't especially long for the power and presence of God. We long for worldly power and worldly possessions. And we evoke God in order to get those things. We aren't ready really calling out to him. We're just wanting to make sure that he gives us what we need to get by. A lot of times in this country, our response to things that we believe are wrong, our response to things that we believe that should be better, our response usually is either we need new legislation or we need a new administration. We call out to the party in power and we say, do something. Or we say that we need a new party in power so we can make new laws to keep those others from making their laws. Listen, there may be laws that need to be put in place. There may, be need, to, there may need to be new leaders to be put in place. But do we really think those things are going to fix our problems? What kind of message do we send to the outside world when we raise a flag or when we raise a name that is not the name of Jesus, that is not the kingdom of God? As if some man, as if some party, as if some politician, as if some agenda can fix us. Don't we serve a higher king? Don't we worship the one true God? Aren't we seeking a greater kingdom? But the world looks at us and says, where is their God at? They don't look much different than us. These are the questions that we need to consider today as we look around at how broken our world is, that what we need is spiritual revival. And if there's ever gonna be revival, if our world is ever gonna be freshly full of the presence and power of God, it's not only, it's only going to come through an overflow from the church. If those gathered at the well aren't drawing water, how will the surrounding world ever be quenched? But more than just drawing water out of God's well, the only true and effective way of combating and countering the spreading hellfire is with a greater flame, and that is with heaven's fire. Thankfully, Joel looks forward in time and he sees a generation that doesn't have to wonder if revival is possible, but he sees a generation where revival is always, always just a prayer away. Look down at verse 23 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Be glad then you children of Zion and rejoice in the Lord your God for he has given you the former rain faithfully and he will cause the rain to come down for you. The former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floor shall be full of wheat. The vats overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. The crawling locusts, the consuming locusts, the chewing locusts, the things that have ate away the world. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord, your God, who has dwelt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall have visions. Also, my men servants and maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days on them. I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire, pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, as in signs from God that he is at, he is at work. Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be saved. Church, this is God's promise to us, to the church. Jewel sees an age when people have access to God's presence and power, where God is pouring his spirit from heaven upon request, upon pursuit. That age is our age. That day is our day. There is no excuse for the church to be struggling spiritually, empty, spiritually compromised with worldly affections or affairs. We have direct access to God's throne. Heaven's fire is waiting for us to call on it. Today is the day when whoever calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. When God is pouring out his spirit on all flesh, giving voices to sons and daughters, uh, giving visions to those that are willing to work and serve him in this world. Today, we celebrate the day of Pentecost, the day when Jesus fulfilled the promise of Joel by pouring out his spirit on his church, and that forever changed the trajectory. Of the world. He gave them voices that could speak power. He gave them visions that could see past temptations and take advantage of opportunities to serve God. He gave them access, unlimited access to God's presence and power by making revival accessible and achievable to whoever seeks and searches for the things of God. For all that make a lifestyle of responding to hellfire by calling out for heaven's fire through lamentation. In repentance, we can usher in a new day of revival. On the first Pentecost, first day of Pentecost in 30 AD, Peter called on those in Jerusalem fresh off of killing Jesus. He proclaims that Jesus had died for their sins. He'd been raised up to give them salvation. And they respond uh, like this. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So this is not just their promise. It's everyone's promise that you and I can be revived. We can be saved and filled with the presence and power of God. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. This is still the only way, the only way to be saved from this crooked, twisted, and skewed generation. I want to close by reading you a prayer that that the Apostle Paul prayed. He included it in his letter to the church at Ephesus. He prays for them to take hold of this gift, that they may place themselves under the fountain of heaven, be vessels filled with, the power of God. I want, you to follow, I want you to listen and notice how he appeals to their faith. He says, don't settle for what this age convinces you is enough. Don't believe that things can't improve. Don't be deceived by solutions that don't have true power. He says, he says there's only one solution, that, a church, that the church be filled with God's power and presence, that the church live by that power and presence. Ephesians 1, this is Paul's prayer for you and for me. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom, revelation, and the knowledge of him, that your eyes be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints as in what he has given to you, What is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, far above principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come as in us. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things that is the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. His prayer for us, God's prayer for us, God's desire for us is that we be filled with this gift, this power. But it only comes our way when we repent, when we turn towards God, when we lament, when we cast our emotions on God, when we counter hellfire with heaven's fire, being filled and empowered. Revival hinges on each and every individual doing these things and being filled with the gift of God so that you and I may obtain that prophetic voice, speaking truth with power, be driven by a passionate vision to see a world that can be different so that we might be revived and filled with the presence and power of God. Revival is possible when we, when I surrender Revival begins when I surrender, when I repent, when I lament, when I am emptied of this world's vanity and filled with heaven's fire. Revival begins with I. We're going to sing a song about lifting our hands. But it's more than just the physical posture, isn't it? It's about the spiritual posture. Joel said, don't just rend your garments, rend your heart. Will you begin to repent with me and lament with me, if today is the day of salvation, if we can call on the name of the Lord and find from him what we need so desperately, why aren't we doing it? Let's bring a burden on our shoulders that may not be ours to bear. Let's be burdened for the world around us and let's go to God and say, God, whatever is in me that isn't as it should be, start with me and work through me. The gift of the Spirit is for everybody. Every Christian at Salvation receives him, but you can be filled with him as much as you want. And that's up to us to ask for it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of salvation. Thank you for Pentecost, which means that we not just have the promises from you, but we have the presence within us. Lord, we live in a world that is broken and hurting This time of year, as much as it can distract us, it brings to mind so many things that are broken about our world, so much grief. Lord, we know that revival starts with I, revival starts with me, revival starts with us. For our children and the next generation, we want to be a church filled with and on fire with the Spirit of God. We wanna be a people that have a passionate uh, voice that speaks out when the world is listening. We want to have a vision that we can do differently and be differently and build something better. And we want to have the presence and power of God that this world is so desperate for. We lift our hands to you, but more importantly, we lift our hearts to you. Would you fill us with the revival today? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.